0: Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and joining me on today's episode is one of my favourite photographers in the business. I'm joined by Mary Sear. Now Mary is responsible for one of my most favourite images and favourite album covers of all time, Jeff Buckley's Grace. This album is so personal to me, it's easily one of my most listened to albums, and Jeff Buckley for me is one of the most talented musicians, by far one of the best singers in the business. And I was about, I think it was about 12 months ago, I was lucky enough to put out a tribute where I got to sit down with David Lorry, his manager, and talk all about the life of Jeff. But I remember when I put that episode, I always thought to myself... As it got released, I always wanted to follow it up, and Mary was high on my list. Someone that is such a personal and close friend of Jeff's, but also responsible for those iconic images that we see all over the internet, all in these incredible books, they're all down to Mary, and I can't wait for her to be joining me on today's episode. But before I get into that interview, you know the score by now, I like to talk about the last episode, so I was joined by the Thrice frontman, Dustin Kensrew. One of my favourite singers in the business. Thrice are easily my favourite band in the business, so to have the opportunity to sit down whilst they're on tour and talk face-to-face with Dustin was just absolutely awesome. A great guy, and I'm so excited about his podcast, Carry the Fire. I'm a subscriber, I'm a Patreon and I listen to every single episode. It gets better week after week and I'm so, so proud of what he's doing and I can't wait for the future of the podcast, but also the future of Frice because right now they're going to be recording and writing more material and it was just such a great interview, so thanks again for everybody that listened to that. But let's get back into today's episode. As a huge, huge Jeff Buckley fan, this is a dream come true, and I can't wait to share it. So here's me and Mary Seer talking all things Jeff Buckley. So Mary, thank you for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Good to be here. So for the listeners out there, what I wanted to know today was basically taking it right back to the start. And when was it that you discovered you wanted to be a photographer? Was it at a very young age? Were you at school or was it a bit later on in life?
1: Actually, I have a bit of an unusual story. Um, when I was 15, I ended up winning um, a modeling contest for a product called Lopes Baby Soft. And that was a perfume that was very popular at the time with teenage girls. Um, and what happened was is I ended up going to New York City and staying at a very nice hotel, the Pierre Hotel. And I ended up being photographed um, by Richard Abaddon, who is like a pretty big fashion photographer and all around great photographer. Um, but it was my first exposure to photography, um, you know, as a job. And um, I didn't really end up loving modeling, but I ended up falling in love with photography. And so, as a teen, I started doing some photography myself, and I ended up going to art school in New York City at Pratt Institute.
0: Wow. So, did you say you were only 15 when this first happened?
1: Yes, and it was weird because I'm from a very small town in Massachusetts. Um, I grew up near the ocean and fishing and doing all sorts of outdoorsy, beachy stuff, so um, going to New York was, um, an amazing experience. And also I think the other thing that happened for me is that it introduced me to New York city, which became my home. I think once I saw New York, um, I knew that I had to go be there and, um, you know, I was still young. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I definitely had to be in New York city. That 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 decision was made when I was 15. So. Wow. Yeah. yeah.
0: So when you were growing up, obviously, at the age of 15, you had this amazing opportunity, and it seems to have opened a lot of doors for you, and then, you know, you went to go to New York. But before then, what was it, or who was it, or was it certain album covers or books? What was it that kind of got that interest in photography?
1: Well, I think... I think the thing that really attracted me to photography was, um, you know, I don't know that I was aware of this so much initially, but I'm a very visual person and it was something that I could do and do well. I had never done super well academically. Um, I was sort of a dreamer and drifty and, you know, so photography really captured my imagination when I was a teenager, and then um, I really further developed that when I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Um, You know, well, I started at Parsons School of Design. I went there for a year, but that was a little too fashion-oriented for me, and I really loved um, Brooklyn. Um, I started college there in 1982 and um, graduated in 86 So from Pratt. And, um, yeah, it just... Photography was kind of a thing. I could spend 12 hours in a dark room, no problem. Um, I really just loved everything about it, about photography. In those days, you know, you worked with film, so there was a lot of different um, steps uh, in photography. First, you would shoot, and then you'd develop the film. And then you would make the contact sheets, and then you'd make proof prints, and then you would make final prints, you know? So it was very delineated, and I loved that, and yeah, I just, the whole process, everything about it, and you know, I've been doing it for a long time, and I still really love being a photographer.
0: Was there any certain photographers that you took influence from, or that you were very interested in where you would s- try and seek out more of their work because back then you didn't have stuff like facebook and instagram so finding people's work wouldn't as it wasn't as easy as it is now
1: right so it was a bit of a process i think when i initially did the modeling of course i was exposed to fashion photography and fashion photographers yeah and there are um wonderful fashion photographers that i really loved from that time um Somebody I really enjoyed uh, looking at was an Italian photographer, Paolo Reversi. He was one of my favorite uh, fashion people. I liked Deborah Turbeville. I really liked, um, also when I was in um, college, uh, one of my exercises for myself was to really try to imitate Richard Avedon's lighting, you know, Um, ultimately I wasn't really interested in fashion photography and so but there were a lot of fashion photographers that I loved and so I think following the fashion influence I really um, became much more interested in documentary and street photography so And that's that's also what I um, really pursued when I was at Pratt Institute. Um, They had really great teachers. um, Like, there was a guy named Bill Gedney, who's a really amazing photographer, um, who was there. I really loved his work. And, um, yeah, I really love street photography and going around in New York and trying to become invisible and photographing people and um, scenes on the street. Um, Yeah. And New York was an endlessly fascinating um, uh, place to photograph.
0: It's one of my favorite places, and I, I was only uh, there a couple of years ago for my dad's birthday. We took him out for his 80th birthday, and I, I fell in love with it. And you know, it's the the amount of material you could get. I'm sure with a camera is endless. Um, I absolutely love the place. When you mention Brooklyn, it's it's so iconic, isn't it? It's absolutely stunning.
1: Well, Brooklyn is a funny thing. I just read, you know, I've been there just since recently. I just moved in November up here, back up to Massachusetts where I grew up. Um, but I spent my whole adult life as a photographer in New York City. And it just, um, it was such a wonderful place to have a career. And, you know, also I have to say, um, Brooklyn, you know, when I first moved there when, in the 80s, it was rough. It was not the, the current iteration of New York is, doesn't have any resemblance to, like, New York City in the 80s. Like, um, in the 80s, you know, it was very dangerous. And, you know, one of, I'll tell you, one of my weird jobs I had in the 80s was um, I worked for uh, the DA's office in, um, in, the, in Queens, which is right near Brooklyn, and um, my job was to take video confessions from criminals. And, you know, so I would get beeped. so We had beepers then, and I would get beeped in the middle of the night. And I would drive out to some precinct out in Far Rockaway, Queens, you know, in the middle of a very scary neighborhood in those days. And, you know, have to find a police precinct with a map, you know, it's an area I wasn't familiar with. There was no GPS, you know, so I was always lost in Queens trying to find some police precinct. But I ended up taking confessions from, um, you know, a lot of crackheads for the most part, you know, because in the eighties, in the mid to late eighties, actually that was in the later eighties, um, but uh, crack became a real scourge on the Brooklyn landscape, and, you know, it was scary out there, you could just get killed or mugged all the time, I try to, you know, I find it hilarious, I, uh, more recently, when I've tried, you know, when you talk to younger people that are, you know, not familiar with the old New York, and you try to describe what it was like, you know, people... They just can't. They they can't really fathom what you're talking about. Like, they'd be like, what? <laughs> you're like,
0: yeah, yeah, I had to
1: run to my front door, <laughs> you know, so I didn't get mugged. So, you know, that doesn't sound like fun to everybody. But for me, that was like I had such an adventure living in Brooklyn in the late '80s and through the, throughout the '90s. I mean, it didn't really um, get cleaned up until. Um, You know Giuliani uh was mayor and he really corporatized New York in a way that you know in the old days it wasn't like that at all and you know the mark the marking of that was um I can't remember which year it happened but um Disney you know Walt Disney ended up buying a huge chunk of 42nd Street and what happened was it uh You know, they used to be all porno theatres along 42nd Street. And, it um, you know, it totally kicked out all of the porn theatres and turned it into sort of a Disneyland. That was sort of the beginning of the new New York.
0: (laughs) What what, what a contrast going from those porn clubs to Mickey Mouse. Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, and it's hard to really describe to people why you miss that like why do you miss the old porno theaters on 42nd street it was just you know it was kind of like being in the wild west before that and you know i think for artists it was a place where an artist could really create themselves and really find their own thing and their own voice and um you know i think new york was a mecca for weirdos and artists from all over the country would gravitate to new york and that's why i feel like you know when i was 15 and i first really got exposed to new york you know i knew right away it was the place for me to go
0: so then during the 80s when you're in new york at what point was it that you started being able to make a living and knowing that you didn't have to have a second job and do all this that you could survive on just your photography
1: well this brings us to jeff buckley um What happened was, you know, Jeff was very instrumental in allowing me to, um, he basically got me my first job with Sony. Uh, When I photographed him for the Live Sine EP, um, he's the one who got me into the Sony system, and after I did that initial job, I ended up doing quite a few more jobs, and having a, a music photography career. So I ended up working for other music companies and stuff in the nineties. And, you know, but Jeff really got me my, he fought for me. He got me my first job in there. Um, you know, before that I had, uh, only photographed him for, um, a magazine for paper magazine. Um, and from that initial shoot, he decided, I was the one that was going to be shooting his first album cover. So um, after I did that first album cover, that was really the marker for when I didn't have to do any other jobs. I just became a photographer. So.
0: Cause that's, I was, you know, I was,
1: he's very important to me.
0: <laughs> I, I was very intrigued on if you had done much band or solo musicians or music scenes before meeting jeff i didn't know if that was your introduction or now you've told me but i was was quite intrigued about that
1: well when i first met jeff it was on assignment for this magazine paper magazine that was sort of a trendy magazine um in manhattan and um you know it was very fashion oriented and stuff like that and he would give me um, a lot of jobs, like they didn't really pay you anything, but it was a way after I got out of school to build up my portfolio. And I was, a lot, you know, I was able to, um, photograph people like Vim Vendors and a lot of film directors and musicians and rappers, you know, it was an amazing job because it really gave me a diversity of entertainers, and I was really attracted to photographing people. I think not just musicians, but artists. I really love working with artists and other artists, you know. That is, um, uh, and I think a lot of times that's because even if they work in a different medium, we can find a collaborative space together um, because they kind of understand the process of what I'm doing. You know, if somebody's a musician, um, you know, they have their own type of process, but there's a way to relate that to what I'm doing photographically. So I really um, love collaborating with artists, you know, they come up with weird ideas and things for you to bounce off, and it it becomes um, play. And that's what I love about being a photographer, I've always been able to play in whatever type of job that I'm doing. Yeah.
0: Has there been some jobs that you've been on with bands or musicians that have been too challenging where you thought, I, this just isn't going to work, our ideas aren't going to be collaborative, it, it's, it's just not going to work?
1: Well, I think um, I did this <laughs> album cover it was for I think it was for Warner Brothers and um it was uh I'm not gonna say who it was but it was a rap musician I was a woman and she was great and everything but she had this manager who really just wanted me to take a booty shot like he just really wanted a shot of her ass and I was just like you know I don't do that you know so um it that was a painful shoot and in the end you know he's like oh just take this shot in front of this mercedes you know and he really you know the 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 musician had she was young she was really nice um but he really just wanted a shot of her butt you know and i I think that was like a terrible shoot that's the worst shoot i don't even like to talk about it because i don't want you to look it up
0: (laughs) no no that's fair
1: I'm like I'm a little and you know in the end the guy got me. There was two shots I took of her in front of this Mercedes, and I had a strobe. It was outside on the street in Brooklyn, and you know he made her turn around and he said, "Take this shot." And I ended up taking two shots, and you know she had short shorts on. Anyway, that was the album cover, and. The thing I remember, and it was horrible, I just felt like, you know, a bad woman, too. Like, not really, like, sticking up for women's, like, what do you mean you want a butt shot, you know? And uh, the, the most horrible thing was I was up on 42nd Street or Times Square, one of the big music stores. I can't remember which one. And there was, like, a, I don't know, it must have been 10 feet by 10 feet Duratrans in the window of this woman's butt and I took that shot and I was just like oh my god this is horrible um, I don't know you know
0: so let's so let's um, flip it around then what's some of the best jobs you've worked on that you've been so proud of
1: well there's obviously the Jeff stuff I, I've always loved collaborating with him um, but um, I did uh, um, Lilith Fair for Rolling Stone and that was a really great job that was in the Know 97, 98, 97, and um, that was an awesome job because I got to travel around with a writer um, and be backstage with the musicians and shoot in that documentary style that I really enjoy shooting in. Um, And I got to shoot a lot of great, uh, you know, singers uh, Paula Cole and um, Sarah Lachlan and yeah, a lot of really great uh, you know, it was a folky style that was very popular at that time and um but the tour was really great and I uh yeah, I enjoyed that.
0: The the way I was introduced to your work was obviously via the Grace album, which is in my opinion my favorite album of all time. Um yeah. I bought the book A Wished For Song and I fell in love and I was looking through it and it's it's so well put together. It's so well respected. I think, you know, there's stuff coming out at the moment where there's Jeff's journals being released and all this, which I'm just not for. But the way you put this book together is like a, a celebration and collection of all these amazing shots. What, what was it like working with Jeff and being around as a person? Well, you
1: know, Jeff... Is an artist, and I mean, in 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 like all of that glory of, I mean, he's somewhat temperamental. Um, amazing, he's you know he could be very generous, and I would say he had a very mercurial personality. That he um, was very generous. He loved to collaborate with other artists. That's why I think we got. On really well is that that is also something that I really enjoy I mean a lot of times I'm a type of person who is very solitary or likes to work alone but when it comes to photographing artists I really get the opportunity to collaborate and really share a vision with somebody else and Jeff in that regard particularly is Very generous with himself, he was willing to try anything, and I and I mean it. Like he let me follow him everywhere. I'd follow him into the bathroom. I'd follow him everywhere, and he never said to me, "No, Mary, you can't come here. Just get out." And he didn't really ever. I don't think he ever said that to me. And that in itself is pretty amazing. I mean, most people, at least some to to some degree or another, are more private than that, while you'd be like, all right, that's enough already. But he never, you know, no matter what I did, he never really said, no, we're not, I'm not doing that. He never said that to me, and I think that is the amazing thing. Like, even if he didn't know what I was alluding to, or talking about particularly, he'd be like, okay, let's try it, you know, and I, I have to say, that's pretty, for me, that's a lot, that's very generous, you know, so, that's how I would describe him as a collaborator is extremely
0: gem- generous. Yeah. So when he was actually working on the grace album and you had this now cover that is just legendary, you know, when you look at the, the top album covers, there's always people like Nirvana and the stone roses and the rolling stones. And you get all these are classic albums, but Jeff is always in the top 20. He's always there. It's, it's the best debut album in my opinion. And the cover's very unique. Um, I read a lot of stories about how he wanted the image to look and the image they went with was not even kind of planned. He was just kind of putting on a jacket. And is that true? Is he just messing around on the shoot to to try and do that? Or was it quite a staged photo? Or how did it work out?
1: Well, um, for the album cover shot, um, there's a number of different stories about that. I mean, during the shoot... um, that was a point when we were just about to take a break and he was hungry and we we're going to have lunch and he started eating this banana. And I, I think there's this thing that people don't really know about Jeff sometimes is Jeff was an extremely humorous person. He was, he was sort of like, he had a very good comedic timing. Um, so at that point in the shoot, I think he was blowing off some steam and like fooling around and you know um i would say maybe like overacting some things a little bit just for fun you know we're playing around which is what you know why i think we got some good picks is that he would play and we would play and that would produce the pictures um but uh the clothing for that shoe, that, that jacket was his. That's a vintage jacket that um, I think he bought off the street or from a, you know, from a small vintage store or something in the village. He usually got a lot of his stuff off the street. You know, people would just lay out blankets and sell their stuff on the street in the old days. I don't think he can do that anymore with that license, but, um, you know everybody down on avenue a and stuff they'd have these blankets out on the street where you could buy stuff and it would be sometimes it'd be like really weird stuff like somebody's broken old toys or something or somebody's like fur coat and broken dollies or something you know yeah so um but um the thing there was a couple different things about the cover and one was i think that not everybody at the record company maybe liked his, uh, glitter jacket. Uh, and I think other people wanted to have a different type of shot, uh, than, that they thought that that might be a little offended. I hate to say that because it seems so ridiculous, but, um, I think they wanted you know, I think the company had a pretty strong idea of how they wanted to market them and market them. Jeff and I don't think he had the same idea about it that's that's what I think that was about um but you know that was a shot he chose off of a contact sheet and he wanted that right from the beginning you know I remember when we were looking at the contact sheets after the shoot and I had printed some proof prints of the shots that I really liked from the shoot Um, And the album cover wasn't one of them. You know, I was like, yeah, it's all right. You know, it's okay. But he saw something totally different in that shot. Uh, When he looked at that photograph, he could really tell that he was listening to the music. And that's what he said. He said, I can tell I'm listening to the music. That's it. That's the album cover, and he never deviated from that and you know the first um contact sheet image he saw was only like an inch big. it's by an inch and an inch and three quarters or something, and um you could tell from there, and he never he never changed his mind from there
0: so then obviously, this album came out, it blew up. that's like you said you never then had to worry about kind of having to do a day job as well as the photography. And your career, you know, it it just went from strength to strength. So you must have spent quite a lot of time with Jeff because obviously I've seen all the different photos you've got backstage and at his apartment and stuff. And you must have become this really tight unit for him to trust you and, like you said, never say to you, stop following me, piss off. You know, he was happy to have you around.
1: Yes, but I think Jeff, once once Grace came out, he was really touring a lot. I think he toured more than anybody else ever like i don't think there was a time when he really stopped touring it seems he was always you know on on tour in australia or he went to japan he went all over europe he went everywhere so um you know especially when he was promoting grace i didn't see him for a long time and then i saw him when he when he came back now and again but um it wasn't until the tail end of the Grace tour that um, I photographed him for a few weeks straight. That covered places like Texas and New Orleans and Florida, um, multiple locations down down south there. So... Um, that was really wonderful, because, you know, it was 100% saturation, I was able to photograph all the time, and the way I liked, and documentary style, and, which doesn't mean we didn't do portraits, because, you know, we take the guys around, and we do portraits on, you know, on the street, we did a bunch of them in Austin, and we did some different ones in New York, so, um, but, you know, I, I think it was full saturation when when Jeff came back to town, you know, from being on tour. So when he'd come back, he'd be like, okay, I'm back. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's do that. So he kind of demanded, like, uh, you know, I'm not going to say 100% attention, but once he was back, he's like, okay, I'm back. Like, let's, you know, he had, you know, things he wanted to do. But like when he was gone, he was just really gone, you know?
0: when he returned and obviously this album blew up and it was you know, no one expected it to be as popular as it was. Did you think Jeff was happy? Did you see a change in him from the guy that you photographed for the Shine album or was he completely different or was he still the Jeff that you always knew?
1: No, I mean he changed. Uh when I first met him, he was definitely a lot more of a goober. He was a lot goofier, less serious You know, he he didn't have the same pressures on him. Uh, So I think once he had gone on tour, and again, because he didn't really take any breaks, um, he was exhausted and a lot. And um, I think just the demands on him, like psychically uh, about being in the public sphere all the time, you know, I think that took its toll, you know, he didn't really have time to have any kind of regular life. I'm not saying he didn't enjoy that. I think, you know, he seems like a natural for being on the road. He seemed to really like it. And, you know, I think he grew up that way. So I don't think it was weird for him. Uh, From what he told me, you know, they when he was a kid, he ended up moving around a lot. And, you know, living out of paper bags is how he put it. So um, I think, The idea of being mobile and on the road was sort of a natural state for him but he didn't really know how to do normal human being stuff like take a break or take a vacation or just do something to relax um you know I think I remember him asking me one time like well what do you do on vacation and I'm like well you just go lay on the beach and read a book or you know or go to the gym and blow off some steam and he's like you know, I don't have time for that kind of stuff, you know, it's pretty much, I think would be his response, you know, like, like that, that, you know, the things regular people did sometimes seem to him to be like, weird, weird ideas, like vacations, things like that.
0: I don't always want to talk about it, it was a conversation that when I had with Dave, I found quite difficult, because it still feels very raw, even after all this time, but Obviously, when we lost Jeff, can you remember where you were and how you found out? Yep.
1: I was in my apartment, and um, a guy guy from Sony named Steve Sussman gave me a call, and uh, he said he just told me that Jeff had gone missing. Um, And, you know, my first response was that it was, I just thought Jeff was um, playing a prank to be honest, I I didn't believe it. I just thought that he was fucking with people and um, you know, because he had a weird sense of humor, I'm not uh, it's not, I, I just, it just didn't seem, it didn't seem possible for one, and I also think that I could see him doing that. Oh, I'm just gonna like, take off and you know, <laughs> fuck
0: Dis- them or Disappear, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
1: But it wasn't that unfortunately and um yeah. No, it was really a very difficult time and you know yeah, yeah. It was a bad time.
0: And what's your views on it now when you've had so many years to reflect? Do you think it was an accident? Do you think he was fed up or do you think he was having the time of his life?
1: Well, maybe all of the above. Yeah. You know. I I don't know if it's like, you know, I think people try to parse it out and like say, oh, did he kill himself or didn't he kill himself or no way he didn't do that or he did drugs or he didn't do drugs or everybody's got, you know, Jeff was, I would say, a very compartmentalized person. I think he shared different things with different people and I think he was actually different, a, a different person for, you know, different people who knew him and, you know, maybe we're all like that, but um the one thing I do have to say is that there was always an awareness in me when I photographed him and I think it comes out in the photograph sometimes um he just seemed like he wasn't gonna make it past a certain point and you know I don't know if it was because of his dad or that his dad died so young and od so young but I think that's a large part of it I sometimes I think he was on a similar trajectory and I don't know why you know if that's something he um chose particularly or whether it was fated or however you want to look at it it was just all, all I can say is that there was always an awareness that um he might not be here so long and um you know I didn't want that to be true and I I think um Yeah, I didn't want that to be true, but, you know, I don't know. He was on some other kind of mythical trajectory where his life was rolling out or he was making choices that um, you know had to do with I you know I, I it's really hard to put my finger on it exactly and say oh yeah it's this oh yeah it's that because it's not like that it's more like a feeling that was always there and it always came up in the work too um, you know there's all these very watery reflective things photos I have of him all over the place and you know that was just always there. So I don't really think, you know, people want a yes or no answer, and I don't think it's like that. I think it's more like people, you know, whether it was just that he had enough of being here on Earth or whatever, I don't know. Is that conscious? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure, you know, and I don't think anybody can say that for sure.
0: And what was the, the last time you spent with him?
1: Well... I, the last time I actually saw him in person was probably a year before. Yeah. But because um, he was down south a lot then, and he was trying to, you know, I just felt like when he was down south there, he was, um, he was trying to become a person, you know, and not just, not just, I guess, be a product. I don't know. He wanted to, you know, have a get a buy this house. He liked that community down there. Um, in Tennessee and he wanted to buy he, he was trying to buy this old car from some guy that didn't want to sell his car but Jeff kept going back and asking him to to buy it you know I the last time I talked with Jeff I think it must have been it was in that spring it was I don't know if it was months, yeah or six weeks before he died but I feel like the last time we talked, he was really just trying to set himself up down there and have a home and, um, you know, find a place to live. I think maybe being on the road so much maybe finally took its toll and he really just wanted a place to call home maybe, you know?
0: And now 25 years later, which time flies the older i get i can't believe how the days go so quick <laughs> i know you wake
1: it's, up one day and you're like it's crazy <laughs> um
0: i know i just i just the months ago like i think every single month is just like wait hold my beer i'm going to try and be faster than the the one previous and i just i can't believe we're in september now but uh you're releasing your 25 years of grace book and you know, the the celebration of his life and the album and the amazing collaborative work you did with him. And I just wondered, has this been something you've been planning for a few years or was it just the fact that now we're at the 25th anniversary you wanted to celebrate his legacy?
1: Well, that's a little bit more complicated. It's kind of, in for the 20th year anniversary of the album... I did something with Rolling Stone Australia and, um, you know, they ended up using all my pictures for this article and they interviewed everybody. And so I had been thinking after that, that I'd really like to make a more expanded version of that. Um, and, you know, I think the interesting thing that happened in the interviews, uh, the new book that I've done is that I interviewed everybody involved in the making of Grace, so um, publicists, A&R, engineers, everybody, the band, of course, um, anybody involved in making Grace, I tried to interview, and I think I got most everybody, and um, it was really interesting because uh, it kind of gave a bit of a snapshot of what the music industry was like in the '90s, which I think is sort of interesting. And I don't think it works quite the same way anymore, of course, since the age of the internet. Yeah, and um, you know. It was uh, Sony at that time was like kind of a behemoth, you know, a huge corporation, you know, and there was lots of money they'd spend on videos and albums and stuff like that. So it was kind of an interesting time, and that all changed, of course, as the Internet kind of became the mass distribution for music. Um, But, uh, yeah... So what happened was the company had put out Wished for Song, the book that I did in 2002. They approached me and asked me to do the 25th anniversary book, which I had already strangely been thinking about already anyhow. So I was like, okay. And uh, they were great. I had worked with them before, so it seemed comfortable and good. Um, And the thing... That happened this time. That's really nice in this book is the images are nice and big. It's in a 12 by 12 format. It folds out to 24 inches. It's, so the pictures are nice and big and wash. And then also, again, I really feel like the interviews became much more important than I actually initially thought they would be. Um, you know, I really found out what people did in their jobs um, working with Jeff and working in the music industry. So I thought that was sort of interesting that it's sort of a B story, but, um, but not really, because it's focused on, um, specifically on the making of Grace.
0: I'm so excited to get it. I'm like, I've ordered it, and it's with Amazon, and I think, you know, it's, I think it's like October. Me too. I'm
1: excited. I've seen the, Um, I got the signatures, which are just the pieces of the book, you know, they yeah. do them in 16-page signatures, and, you know, it's not the final printing, but it was just really nice to see the images. I, I know, super large. They're large, you know, and they look beautiful, so I'm just like, yay, because you know, it's nice to see it. I, I, I really enjoyed making a wish for song. But, um, you know, the images were sort of small. And of course, I want to see them big. They're my pictures. Yay! I,
0: I I bought that book in paperback and hardback. Well, hardback is just in my collection as do not touch, leave this, don't ever fold the page, <laughs> just let it be. And my yeah. paperback is my sit down and enjoy you know it's like my, my precious little book that you shouldn't touch and I, I'm, I'm going to do the same with the new one I want the hardback the special decent big expensive proper version and then my version that I don't mind if I've you know slightly got a bit of you know I've had a cup of tea and I've got a grease on my hand or something it's okay to touch this one you know
1: <laughs> well I'm just about I'm gonna send out um Uh, I don't get some first copies until the end of September but definitely give me your address because I'd like to send you a a copy.
0: That would be awesome. So, after the release of this book and everything that's gone on and obviously your previous work, how are you spending your time now? Um, Obviously, the... Are you, are you still taking photos every day? Are you still working as hard as you used to, or are you trying to try and get a good balance? Yes,
1: in um, a little. Well, I just had a big transition recently. Um, for the past ten years or so, I, am, I was working with Apple uh, in New York because they have a couple of stores there in both Soho and Williamsburg, and I would photograph the events there. So. Um, that really took a lot of my time for the last 10 years. Um, but in the last three years, I also have been getting my master's, my MFA. Um, and it was good. I started studying a little bit more art history theory and stuff like that and really have enjoyed that. So, um, I just finished in May. So I needed a, you know, I did my thesis and everything. So I'm just, am just at the end of recuperating from that now and rebooting, everything but I'm trying to incorporate some of the new things I learned into my practice and you know some of that's teaching I do enjoy teaching um, and I'd like to do a little bit more of that Um, but uh, I'm still shooting the musicians here and there Um, yeah and we just we just came out of New York recently too we just moved out in November so I'm getting used to country life again
0: and how is that? Is it because it's such a contrast, isn't it? You've gone from the busiest city, the most commercial city, the the lights, the, the place that never shuts, to now having a bit more of a quiet, better balance.
1: Yes. Well, as I mentioned before, New York is not really the same New York I initially moved to. Yeah. And I think over the past ten years, even five years, more like five years, I. I hadn't really enjoyed living in New York quite so much, and the environment has changed, but also it's becoming a more and more corporate space. It's very, um, it's not really meant for artists so much now. It's extremely expensive. Um, you know, the neighborhood I moved to, Williamsburg, when I moved there, it was a Polish neighborhood. Um then there was, you know, scattered artists here and there. And now it's like, you know, it's pretty much for rich people now, and with people with nannies and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine, but it's not really a space um, for an artist so much, I would say. It's too, you know, there's not enough room there. <laughs> it's very corporate. And, you know, that's not the New York... I hate to sound like such an old, old guy, but it's just... I don't know, it's, I, I'm enjoying my transition into the country life a lot, um, I have a bunch of chickens, you know, I have my garden, I have, you know, I'm getting reacquainted with nature.
0: <laughs> Something so. you've missed out on, I'm sure, being in the uh, the Big Apple
1: yeah that's what was always in Greenpoint, williamsburg you know we had mccarran park there but i wouldn't really call that nature <laughs> so um, yeah but um you know some, once in a while i i have a feeling like i miss new york but really i've kind of missed the old new york if you want to know the truth
0: my final question for you today and you kind of touched base on it a bit and especially with the music industry and how it's changed i think It's easier to do things now. If you want to be in a band, you can record an album at home for no money when 10, 20 years ago you had to spend thousands. But the same with photography, you know. Everyone on Instagram thinks they're a photographer now with a filter, but... (laughs) I know!
1: Everybody is a
0: photographer. And I just wondered how you would kind of guide someone or give them advice who's listening, who wants to be the standout photographer now, because we're unindated with people it's it's a hard place now this world to make a name for yourself and you're usually famous for around five minutes and then you're just brushed aside and it's next but how would you give that advice to someone now that wants to be like you and have that career and shoot those people and produce those albums that they're proud of
1: well i think there's pros and cons the you know past and the present like in the past you know you didn't have access you know i couldn't just you'd have to call somebody on the phone and cold calling somebody you don't know they barely ever answer because of the internet if you have something interesting to show or um uh you know something good that will catch somebody's attention. You can get in touch with almost anybody. It's amazing. You know whether you do it through somebody's manager on the on, online. You know if you have something, people will respond. Um, so, but in you know so that's the positive thing I think about now. There's a lot of different avenues people can follow. Um, to achieve their goals however you know as you mentioned now everybody and their brother is a photographer is a musician is a everything um without um a lot of times without actually doing the work it takes to get there and to do that and you know technology is their to assist a vision it doesn't replace a vision so you know no matter how sophisticated or easy technology gets to use it doesn't necessarily mean like that everybody who does it has a great idea and that's why there's like phrases like creatives or contents or things like that you know there's a lot of content out there to wade through so that's the difficulty of now you know you have the techno- technological tools that can help you achieve your goals but and and to distribute them and get attention. But you also have so much competition and there's a lot of subterfusion that there's just so much stuff. Um, you know, so in the old days, you didn't have so many people trying to do the same job you were doing. Um, but it was harder to get in touch with the people you wanted to talk to. Yeah. Like, for instance, um, you know, Jeff kind of broke me into uh, Sony uh, in the 90s. And, you know, just a quick weird story about that is, you know, the art director um, that was Jeff's art dire- the art director that did Grace, um, Chris, he actually had a lot of my promotional materials in his office when I went there for the first meeting with Jeff. And I was amazed. I was like... I looked on his wall and he had two of my promo pieces framed and weirdly a picture of me that a photographer friend took of me. And I kind of was like, geez, why didn't you ever call me and give me a job? I mean, he liked my work apparently because he had framed some of it, but it really took um, Jeff to bring me into that space to get him to give me a job. And I think that, that's the thing I'm going to say is the same now as it is then, is that you can, you're going to get most of your work through your personal relationships and the people that you collaborate with and make friends with. Um, that's going to happen more uh, if you do those collaborations. Like if you're just cold calling people or approaching people, that you don't know, it's less likely. So you really, you know, I went to, when I was younger, I would go to salons with other photographer friends who would look at each other's work and critique each other and try to help each other. And I still think that that's very important, especially now because, um, you know, one, if you're really serious, like, for instance, about being a photographer, You have to put in the time. I don't, there's no substitute for, um, you have to do it all the time. That's all there is to it. To get better, you just have to keep doing it. And, you know, and if you do that, then you'll find your own voice eventually. You know, initially you have to copy other people, imitate them or imitate their lighting. But eventually, you know, if you just keep doing the work, you will find what you're really attracted to your color scheme your lighting that you like your style of shooting um, but I don't think an Instagram photo is a substitute for you know where the filters are the dominant thing that create the vibe of the photo I you know everybody else is doing that too so you know a person has to still find a way to differentiate themselves from the crowd right And, um, yeah, that's the important thing. And, you know, you have to put your time in. You know, I know it's a drag, but you gotta do it. (laughs) I
0: don't don't think some people appreciate how much time you have to put in as well. Like, Sometimes they think, oh, you did an interview for a podcast, you met someone, recorded it, and that's it. It's like, no, it takes the background work, the relationship building, the trust element, the producing of it, the artwork, the design that goes with it, the editing of it and producing it so it sounds professional, and then putting it out there and distributing it. And people don't realise how much effort goes into just the small little things. And I think as a photographer... It must be the same. Oh wow, that was a really good photo. You you just caught it at the right time. It's like no, I knew I had to know when the right time was. You know.
1: Well, if, yeah, and or just like for instance, I like to shoot documentary style. A lot of that is waiting. Like if you know if I'm photographing in a small club and it's the old days and I have like 3,200 ASA film and it's a dark club and I'm looking, you know, I'm waiting for the guy to get his head in the right spot in the light and have the right expression. So there's a lot of waiting and patience that's involved in that and you have to be willing to do that kind of stuff. Like you have to become whatever field you're, you're in, you have to become very observant of you know your environment and what's happening and um that's a that's a practice thing I think you know and and you know as you know you must know from doing the podcast it's probably different than when when you started than now I mean I'm sure you've learned a tremendous amount right and things have changed in your technique right
0: massively I think I need to just I think the biggest lesson I taught myself was just to stop sometimes and let people talk and allow that space. Not I listen to too many podcasts where it's like, how are you? Oh, great, I'm well too, and I'm really happy today. And it's like, no, no, you asked how she was, let us say how she is, and then we'll ask the next question, you know? Well,
1: I don't know. That, that means I get to ramble and ramble, and I can really ramble. So
0: <laughs> I love it. I, <laughs> I could listen to me. you all day, so I, I, I will never complain. I absolutely love listening to people talk, so I think if you allow them the space and the time and the, the respect, I think it's, it's gold, and that's what this world misses right now.
1: Yeah, do you feel like the content is uh, a little thin sometimes?
0: It's just, it's just so fake now. It's just everyone's trying to sell something in five minutes, and every snippet is a two-minute video. And if you want longer on Instagram, you can't do longer than a couple of minutes because people just don't have the attention span. Film trailers are two minutes. A film is now an hour and a half. People haven't got the patience of a you know. Just they just want something quick done, and it's a shame.
1: Yes. I agree. I agree, but I I wonder what's um I wonder what will engage people that way. I wonder how how you can get people's attention now.
0: I'm not sure now, but there's a big audience out there that's still like a proper conversation and that's why I still do this and I'll continue to do it and I think if you get to hear a snippet of someone you can hear that on every single station because they're there to sell a book or sell a film. But if you actually have a proper conversation, you learn more about why they're doing that book yes. and how it's become. And that's- yeah,
1: which I would say tr- that's true. And then also, you know, that is true, like in most of the time in interviews especially about the Jeff Buckley stuff. Also I think, you know, people wanna hear what they want to hear sometimes too. You know, they have um certain questions that they um want certain responses to and if you don't say that <laughs> I don't like it sometimes. Uh, you
0: know And not having a motive is quite nice sitting here and just talking about Jeff and your career and what influenced you and It'd be like the same conversation we'd have if we met in a bar and just had a drink and we're talking and discovering about each other, and that's what I think is important. I think if I'm just there saying, "Did you think Jeff was uh, suicidal?" You know, what what's that going to do? You know, it's it's. It doesn't, yeah,
1: it's, it's, it doesn't really, that, that uh, yeah, and also, like, uh, trying to get concrete answers to things that are a little more mysterious, uh, sometimes that doesn't work either, you know, they're just, sometimes things are just mysterious, you know, you can kind of look at the mysteriousness of them or describe them or take photographs of them, but, you know, really, you know, that's the thing I have to say about my time with Jeff is, like, I, you know, part of me just feels like I was kind of a witness to him passing through and that was my um job I guess with him or my uh, yeah that's just what it how it turned out you know in terms of our how what our dynamic was and our relationship like he wanted me to witness that and photograph that and um save that I guess for posterity I guess but um you know, I, I, know that's true. I, you know, Jeff on one level was also very practical, you know, he understood that, um, you know, I think having like a personalized image, uh, you know, photos taken by somebody who cared about him were gonna, um, we're going to have a different effect than if you just went in and took that photograph. I just met him, I took the photo, and, you know, that's it. Um, so I think he understood the, um, um, the influence that that could have on the images and how he was perceived and how he was portrayed. So um, I think that's why, you know, once we did some work, he decided to keep engaging me that way
0: it shows though in the in the photography i've seen of yours all the live performances you've captured him he's it sounds ridiculous but i can say it cuz it's to you and you're the person with the camera but he's got that trust in the photo if that makes sense he looks relaxed he looks at ease he's not blinking halfway, playing his guitar, and his hair's all over. You've captured the moment, and that moment is probably because he knows it's you and he's trusting you, and it's it's hard to express because you're the person that took the photo, but his photo... Uh, no, no, you're right, yeah.
1: and I think, again, when I was on tour with them and on the road, it because it was a continuous thing day after day, it also became such a part of our dynamic, like... Um, You know, I would be wandering around doing my own thing, like, whatever, crawling around, shooting from this angle or that angle. But every once in a while, like, during the performance or during warm-up or something, he would, like, look for me and find me in the room and, like, make eye contact and then just, like, you know, have a little smile and then keep doing what he was doing. I think that 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 type of intimacy was so seductive, you know, for what I was doing, and the way I felt about him, and how I was portraying him, I, you know, and I I feel like he was very aware of that, but I don't think that that makes it less sincere, I still think it was a sincere connection, but there was a usefulness um, of that for him, you know, that that's how he wanted to be seen, or portrayed, or viewed, and, um, You know, and I was willing, certainly willing to do that.
0: I think the word that keeps tapping away while you're talking to me is just authentic. And that's what other people wouldn't be able to capture. You could because it was real.
1: Well, that was his primary um, concern, I think, all the time, that he was being authentic, that he was being authentic with himself, that he was being authentic with his audience, that he was being sincere, you know, so I think, for instance, when Sony or was trying to depict him in a way that he didn't think was authentic to him, he was very resistant to that, he wanted it to be real, and, um, yeah, and, you know, and again, at that time, in the 90s, that was also an idea that was very prevalent with a lot of artists, you know, as the corporation grew and grew and become more dominant in people's lives, you know, that artists wanted to maintain some sense of authenticity became kind of the word on everybody's lips. Um, You know, is this authentic? And, you know, I, don't feel like people are focused on that idea in the same way now as they used to be like, um, yeah, I feel like people are much more willing to trust the corporation now. Whereas at that time in the nineties, that definitely wasn't how artists were as at least artists in New York were looking at the corporation. <laughs> Certainly not with trust. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's 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 scary, isn't it, how the the common thing we've mentioned today is how photography's changed, how the music industry's changed, how New York has changed. And it's it's just everything is changing, everything is so disposable now. I used to love queuing up at a record store, buying an album, waiting for it, you know, getting there first thing in the morning, buying that, taking it home, reading the booklet, all the words, looking at the pictures, even the smell of a brand new CD. And now it's just download, listen, delete, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, that it's...
1: was also part of the thing about making the book um, 12 inches by 12 inches, which is the same size as a vinyl yeah. record. It also hails back to this idea like when... When I was a kid, it was bigger, you know, it wasn't CDs, it was, um, records, you know, and you'd open them up and there was pictures and you could, sometimes they were double folds out, fold outs. The album art was part of the experience of, um, getting a record. And, um, yeah, I mean, and also I'm lucky to be in this gallery, Morrison Hotel Gallery, uh, which, um, is run by a photographer named Henry Diltz who did, you know, um, uh, um, like some of the most famous '70s album covers that existed, and he, you know, they, they, at that time, they created album packaging design with the photography for the first time. It would be like an art director doing it instead of somebody from the record company, or a photographer and the band would come up with a concept. It, it's a, you know that really, I loved that idea that the visuals were just as much a part of the experience as the music, or maybe not quite as much, but at least it was uh, something that supported the music.
0: I think that's why vinyl's doing so well and has such a comeback Nouns, and I think at the moment it outsells CDs again, because people yeah. miss that, people miss the, the artwork and the, the, the whole experience again, it's that nostalgia trip, and I miss it, and that's why I'm buying my favorite classic albums of all time again on vinyl, so I've got them. And it sounds better, but also it's nice just to have the whole package.
1: yes, it's a different experience, and it's more i think also as things become more abstract and and as you said, sound buddy and short, and you know everything's like blah 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 coming at you that to have something solid and you know that you can hold in your hands that you can touch and you know experience in a, in a you what know, maybe experience in a more long form way it's not abbreviated I think that's um, you know yeah I can see how people would be hungry for that now
0: I know so many listeners right now that we're going shut up Mark you sound like a granddad. just get with it download Spotify listen to music it's easy you can have a thousand songs in your pocket you old git <laughs> <laughs> that's too easy darn it too easy It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today and I've absolutely loved the journey you've taken me on and hearing all about you growing up and how it's all worked out and how you're still doing it now and your life's changed and it seems like you've had a great, great time and you've still got great times ahead. So I just want to say a massive thank you for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Yeah, no, photography has been a wonderful adventure and it continues to be so. and, And it was a pleasure talking to you as well.
0: So there it is. There's my interview with me and Mary. Such a great person, such a beautiful person and so honest and so deep. And I really do appreciate just how honest the interview went and just how much she let me into the life that she spent with Jeff. So I'm very, very grateful. And it is really genuinely a dream come true to have that time with Mary. If you haven't checked out Mary's work, go on her website, go on her Instagram, go on her Twitter. Everything's available online and just look at the amazing work she's done and still doing to this day. She's very, very talented and an absolute genius and I love all her work that's out there. I checked out A Wished For Song. That was one of the first books I got. And recently I bought it for one of my best friends, Darren. It's such a beautiful book. It's so well put together with some amazing images of Jeff, some amazing words, and honestly, you'll sit there and get lost in it. It's one of those books that you just have to own, and you'll keep dipping in and going back to it all the time. But the most recent book, 25 Years of Grace, is this hardback edition that's just come out. It is gorgeous. The picture quality is stunning. Much larger images, much higher quality images. And as a fan of photography, you will adore it. But if you're a fan of Jeff Buckley, you will fall in love. It's stunning. It's my new favourite book and I urge you all to go out and check it out. It is absolutely gorgeous. You know the score by now. If you go on to markandme.com, you can get links to my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram and my email address. I make sure that I check every single message you leave me, every email I respond to and every social media comment I'll always action and reply. I love reading the response to the episodes and I usually share them all with the guests as well who love reading it. So if you love today's episode, jump online, leave a comment or pass me a message and I'll forward it on to Mary because she'll love reading all the amazing response and positive feedback. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to join me and again there is a Patreon site on there as well. If you want to sign up you can sign up there for as little as 70p, that's all it is and for that you get an episode a week of Mark and Me, you also get chances to win loads of great prizes and what I'm trying to do at the moment with all the guests that I have on the podcast I try and get something quite unique especially if the guests can sign something for me or give me something from their collection. And with that, it goes straight up for you guys on the Patreon page. It's my way of saying thank you for all the support and all the guidance you give me with this podcast, and I can't thank you enough. I want to dedicate today's episode to someone very special, someone that's been there for me a lot, and someone that's made me a much better person. You know who you are, and this is dedicated to you, so thank you very much. I will be back in one week's time with a brand new episode, and in the meantime, stay safe, and I'll see you all then.
2: The crossroads I'm standing at Or maybe it's the weather or something like that But mama, you've been on my mind I mean no trouble, please don't put me down Don't get upset, I am not pleading Oh saying I can't forget you I do not pace the floor about down and bent but yet well mommy you've been on my mind even though my eyes are hazy and my thoughts they might be narrow where you've been don't bother me oh bring I don't even mind who you'll be waking with tomorrow. But mama, you're just on my mind. I am not asking you to say words like yes or no. Please understand me. I have no place I'm calling you to go. I'm just whispering to myself so I can't pretend that I don't know. Mommy's just on my mind. Wake up in the morning, baby, look inside your mirror. You know I won't be next to you, you know I won't be near. I'd just be curious to know if you can see yourself as clear as someone who has had you on his mind.